Has anyone ever said to you to put yourself in their shoes? Now, the reason someone obviously says that to you is because they want you to see something from someone else's perspective. It does not mean if you put yourself in someone else's shoes that you're always going to agree with them. It does mean you will better understand their motivations, what they want. You'll better understand the way they see the world. I've often thought in this particular place of Miss Amal, many of you know her or you know of her. She's an older Syrian Christian. She came here decades ago when Sheikh Sakhar was in power. She came to deliver babies. She came to bear witness in this needy place. And I have thought about what it would have been like to live life in her shoes in this place so many decades ago. What was it like to show up here then? What's it been like to press on in faithfulness and faith for so many years in this place? I'm beginning this way this morning because I want you this morning to think about putting yourself in the shoes of those in the account we're going to consider in Genesis 44 through the first half of Genesis 45. I want you to consider the tensions, the uncertainties, the ending that would have from their perspective been unthinkable. And my hope is that by putting yourself in their shoes, you will have your eyes turned away from any one person in this account to God, whose sovereign goodness comes forward clearly in all of this. So here's the main point I want you to see this morning in this text. In a world of real wickedness, in a world of real wickedness, the good and gracious sovereign God reigns. In a world of real wickedness, the good and gracious sovereign God reigns. Anchor your life there. Anchor your life there in that reality. And so to walk through this text, I want to just ask two questions that I think are the tensions in each of these sections. So for all of Genesis 44, the question is survival or slavery? Survival or slavery. That's the first point you can write down if you're writing things down. Survival or slavery. When we're coming to this text, Joseph is now 39 years old. Last week, we leave Genesis 43, and the brothers, minus Joseph, are feasting together. They're merry. They have no idea who Joseph is. And now Simeon is back with them. They've got Benjamin. He's going back safe. They're ready to go. They have no idea. There's one more test. And it's this test that will be decisive. Look down at verse one. Then he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, 
fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Pause there. They've had this night of feasting, and here's this final te test that Joseph plans the next morning. Uh, the, the episode would be called Joseph and the Silver Cup. The steward carries it out, silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Now just put yourself in their shoes. They are totally relieved that this entire scenario is over until suddenly the steward comes. And he asks in verse four, why have you repaid evil for good? And when he says that Joseph practices divination by the cup, uh, I, I don't think that Joseph was doing Egyptian magic. It is part of the ruse. It's part of the psychological pressure that Joseph is deliberately using to set this up. And it's how they respond to the steward here that matters. Verse seven, they're emphatic about their innocence. There is good reason to believe them. After all, they had already brought money back the first time. Why would they steal this time? Notice how certain they are of their innocence in verse nine. Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. Now just put yourself in their shoes. They have no idea if one of their brothers actually did steal this cup. These brothers have demonstrably proven they are wicked in the past. There is a level of trust that this response demonstrates by these brothers who have betrayed their own brother, who have deceived their father. They're so sure of their own innocence, they're so sure of their own integrity, that they don't just say, let the one who did it die. They offer all of themselves up to be slaves. Stuart, carefully, verse 10, Simi agrees to the terms. Only the one with the cup will be charged. The rest, innocent. This is critical for what Joseph is getting at. Of course, the great reveal comes 
Each man opens and checks his sack. It went from verse 12, oldest to youngest. This was not like maybe your birthday party or Christmas day when there's just everyone opening gifts at once. This was done slowly. You would have felt tension build. Every person, as it came to Benjamin, who opens his sack, he thinks he's innocent. He finds the cup. Now think about this. You have no idea if Benjamin did this. You do know the night before he was shown extraordinary favoritism by the man in power in Egypt. You do know he's Jacob's favorite son. But what did they do? Verse 13, no words are wasted. They tore their clothes The last time someone tore their clothes, it was Jacob. Back in Genesis 37, when these same brothers told him that Joseph had been torn to pieces by a wild animal. And these brothers did not care. But now, Benjamin's life is at stake. And they all tear their clothes. They tear their clothes, they've collectively trusted, they've collectively said we are willing to be slaves if someone else's survival is at stake. And they don't know because nothing is said to them if he's innocent or guilty. Every man loads his donkey. They return to the city. And here we are in circumstances that are strangely, providentially, purposely, just like Genesis 37. When these brothers, when no one would know otherwise, chose their own survival and forced Joseph into slavery. And here we are again with these brothers, when no one would know otherwise, have the chance to once again sell out the favored brother, make up their own story for survival and be on their way. Joseph, very purposely, is recreating the entire scenario from over two decades before. Two decades later, the brothers find themselves far away from home. They have the power to betray and abandon the youngest brother, the favored brother. They're right back in the situation where all of this started. What will they do? Choose survival Sell Benjamin out? No. Instead of abandoning Benjamin, instead of making up a story to Jacob, they are willing to become slaves when their survival was at stake. Look now at verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you've done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, 
Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our younger brother, youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servants, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So the steward carries out his part. And here's Joseph carrying out his. Notice that when they arrived in verse 14, they fell again down before Joseph. They all bowed down. God's decree in the dream is being fulfilled in all of their confusion, the brothers are right in the center of the providence of God. Joseph's destiny is being fulfilled. Their destiny is being worked out. And Judah emerges as the leader. Joseph in verse 15, verse 15 provokes them to be honest by reminding them that by that silver cup, he can practice divination. And it's Judah who speaks in verse 16. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. This is so noble. But Joseph refuses it. He's clear only the one in whose cup hand the cup has been found will be his servant. You have to wonder, uh, did Joseph just want Benjamin to stay and for the rest to go? I don't think that's what he's after. But if they had responded wrongly, that is what would have happened. Now put yourself in Judah's shoes. Two decades earlier, Genesis 37, 26 to 27, Judah was faced with the same decision. What do I do about Joseph? And he said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. And now he's got that choice again. He can sell out his brother to profit himself. And instead he confesses, 
God has found out the guilt of our servants. He's not confessing guilt in this instance. He's already argued for his innocence. He knows and Joseph knows that he and the brothers are guilty in the deepest sense. He has sold out his brother, the brother before whom he stands into slavery. And he is accepting guilt and he is willing to be the slave, ironically of Joseph because of it. So beginning in verse 18, after Joseph says, only the one in whose sack the cup is found will be the slave. Judah then gives what is the longest speech in all of Genesis. And it's beautiful and it's surprising because Judah makes clear that his own survival, his own life is not what is first and foremost in his mind. What does he do in this speech? Judah seeks to appease, he seeks to satisfy the anger of Joseph, who to him is like Pharaoh. He's fulfilling the pledge he made to Jacob. And that's what he brings up again and again. Look at the speech, father, father, father. It is the word most repeated in this speech. Jacob's favoritism to Joseph, to Benjamin, has so divided and hurt this family. And it is met with unbelievable love and loyalty by Judah. Verse 20, we have a father. He's old, one brother dead, younger brother alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Verse 27, he recounts how Jacob said, you know that my wife bore me two sons. Judah and the rest of these brothers are Jacob's sons. But Judah only refers to Benjamin as the one alone left of his mother's children, the one whom his father loves. Judah refers only to Rachel as the mother of Jacob's children. These brothers had mothers that they loved as well. And I think in this speech, Judah is putting himself very deliberately in Jacob's shoes. He loves his father, he honors him, and he knows deeply the faults and flaws of his father. But he knows, as a grown man, it was Rachel, not not his own mother Leah, who Jacob wanted to marry. It was her sons that Jacob did look on in a special way. And it's remarkable that Judah is not angry. The Lord has worked in Judah's life You remember Judah himself has lost sons. Genesis 38. I think he understands, even if he doesn't agree, what it is to walk in the shoes of his father. He honors him with this speech. Verse 31, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, bringing him down to Sheol. So he knows that if Benjamin does not return, Jacob will die Judah is putting himself on the line for Jacob's survival. He is seeking to compel this ruler in Egypt with the love he has for his father, not knowing at all that by speaking to him in this way, he's making the case for his own survival as well. Judah pledges himself. So much so that verse 33, he says, Please let your servant remain 
said of the boy, let the boy go back with his brothers. He was faced with the exact same scenario 20-something years before this, and he sold his youngest brother out. Now he's substituting himself for him. This is not the Judah of chapter 38 who just lives for his own flesh. This is the Judah who substitutes himself, who lays his life down, who gives up his survival for Benjamin's and who is more concerned for his father's survival than his own. Earlier, these brothers, these brothers with the steward said we were willing to choose slavery over survival. Now here's Judah. He's emerged as the leader who is willing to sacrifice himself for the good of his family. And did you notice Joseph never needed that divination to figure out what was going on because God decisively worked in Judah. In this test, which was a test of survival or slavery, we see clearly God radically changes sinners. These brothers, especially Judah, are changed men. I wonder if you're a Christian and you at times feel like change is so slow in your life. Realize this took place over 20 years. Most of the time, God works slowly. And the question for all of us is, will we trust God when his work seems so slow? Or we trust our wisdom? Anchor your life in believing that God is more committed to his purposes for the world and for you in Christ than you are. He's not in the hurry that you're in. He's not surprised by what has surprised and confounded you. He's providing all that you need in ways you don't understand for you to grow in grace. Ask yourself why you treat God with such suspicion. Why you're suspicious of him and certain of yourself. Uh, these, these brothers are different people when they're meeting each other. And do you realize that over two decades, God was using thousands of moments and details to ensure that at this moment, they would be different men. There's been so much human wickedness and God has reigned and worked in all of it. And he's not changed. He's not wasting time in your life. He's at work in your present, in your present. In light of a future he's purposed, he's carefully preparing you for. I hope you maybe noticed that in this account, unlike in the rest of Genesis, the author Moses has been very quiet about activity of God. We've been meant to discern it. But has God not worked in the details? Is this not true of God when we can't make sense of what God is doing or where he is? When heaven seems silent, we're meant to trust, to anchor our lives, our hope in the constant, unceasing goodness of God down to the detail of your life that's so perplexing. He's not wasting time with you. 
He's given you your family. He's given you your circumstances. He's given you your trials with eternal goodness and wisdom. And just like in this account, he is making better, more eternally good use of it than you can fathom. Maybe as you sit there, you know the Lord has changed me. Praise the Lord. Look back on that. Study that. Study what he's done in your life, how he did things that you weren't even noticing or aware of at the time. Have you thanked God and praised him for that lately? Or is it your instinct now to doubt him when things don't go your way instead of praising him? Examine your heart, figure out the ways you think you're wiser than God and don't be gentle with that part of your life. Go after it. We also see here that Judah points us forward to Jesus Christ. Judah leads not by taking, but by giving, serving, sacrificing himself. God is saving this family by Judah, sacrificing, substituting himself while satisfying the anger of the powerful Pharaoh. Judah is willing to become a slave so that Benjamin can survive. Is that not the leader, the kind of man we long for in the world? Uh, Judah is pointing us to, he's making us anticipate the Messiah who was promised and predicted in Genesis. God means for us to see ourselves in Benjamin's shoes, to long for someone to substitute himself for us. I mean, can you think about what it was like to be in Benjamin's shoes that day? What about in Joseph's? as he sat there and listened to Judah, as he recounted details of this story, a number of which until this moment he would not have known because he had already been sold. Now, speech is finished, and there's a question now for Joseph. Will he respond in wrath or reconciliation? That's the second question. Reconciliation or wrath? I'm going to read the first 15 verses of chapter 45. Reconciliation or wrath. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud so that the Egyptian heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. for They were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these land, this land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. 
You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have, there I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. In the face of this plea by Judah, the face of these brothers not selling out Benjamin as they did to Joseph, in the face of massive transformation, Joseph lavishes on them a great salvation. The brothers feared wrath. What they got was undeserved and full reconciliation. He's been keeping a hard face to them And who is he? He's really the man who wants to weep. He dismissed everyone from his presence. He's weeping so loud. The Egyptians, the whole household of Pharaoh hears it. Here's Joseph filled with compassion. Here is Joseph, importantly, standing with the tribes of Israel, the covenant family of God, over and above the power and prestige of Egypt. Put yourself in their shoes once again, and imagine the shock when in verse three, he said to them, I am Joseph. The text says they could not answer him. They were dismayed at his presence. Suddenly, the brother who they thought was dead by their hands is alive. He stands resurrected in their presence. And beyond the shock, I think they knew great fear. What will he do to us? Verse four, when he said, come near to me, he says it again, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Will he pour out his wrath? He has the power. He has the right. What he says to them is unthinkable because he's a man who's been deeply, deeply changed by God. He is a man who deeply knows God. He is God-centered in the way he responds. Verse five, do not be distressed, angry with yourselves because you sold me here. You really did this. For God sent me to preserve you, to preserve life. Verse seven, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant to keep alive for you many survivors. So what's the logic? It's not you who sold me here, but God. He's made me a father. He means chief advisor to Pharaoh. He's Lord of his house. Joseph extols God, his goodness, his sovereign work in this. And what does he want? He wants his father to come to him. And then because he's not certain if he'll come, he gives him every reason to come. The famine's going to continue. I'm gonna treat you with generosity. Verse 10, you'll dwell in Joseph, uh, Goshen, your children's children, their flocks. I'm going to provide for you. They don't have to come to poverty. 
What does he want in verse 13? Go tell my father of all my honor in Egypt. Go tell my father, the son that you thought was dead is alive. Go tell my father, your son is resurrected from the dead. And he has more power and honor than you can imagine. And I'm going to lavish it all on you. It's an incredible scene. It's an amazing ending. Joseph, Benjamin, Joseph, brothers, hugging, reconciling, weeping. Years of wrath and now full reconciliation. We're meant to see that God will accomplish his purposes for his glory, for his people, by forgiveness, by wrath being satisfied. Judah satisfied Joseph's wrath. In the brothers' shoes, they expected wrath. And now the wrath satisfied, he reconciles them through forgiveness. The brothers were saved. The family line continues. The tribe of Israel would be reconciled because Joseph, who was raised up, forgave them. Now, there is a reason when we hear this story Deep down, we all love it because deep down, we all want this story to be true. We see vividly, we've seen it in this account. The scriptures don't hide it, the terrible wrong of these brothers. And we're watching in real time their repentance. It is a microcosm. It's a a story that points to the most fundamental central story of the world. Like the brothers against Joseph, you and I have sinned against, we've wronged God. We've done so personally, we've done so repeatedly, and the God that we would expect to react to us in wrath has acted to forgive. His own son, just like Joseph, but perfectly kept doing what was right. He fulfilled all righteousness. He never sinned, and because of that, it only caused him to suffer more and more He was betrayed. He was handed over by his brothers to a foreign power. Worse than going to a prison, he went to the cross. And even more so than Judah before Joseph, he satisfied wrath, the wrath of God. He substituted himself for his brothers. He died. He was thought to be no more, but he was raised up in resurrection and he is ready and able to forgive Now, you've seen the beauty of repentance in this account. You're called to repent. I'm called to repent, to believe in him, to come to him, because he offers and he has secured for you full reconciliation. I am confident there's not a person on the planet who deep down doesn't want that, what I just said, to be true, to be reality. And what's almost unbelievable is it is true. God has done this in Jesus Christ. And if you're trusting Christ, you've been swept up into this story. This is your reality. There is reconciliation in this account that began with so much division. How did Genesis begin? Cain and Abel with such irreconcilable differences that Cain killed him. And now there is far greater irreconcilable differences and Joseph forgives and he reconciles. This is the way, this is the wisdom of God in a wicked world. 
The truth about God is he really delights in mercy. He is good. If you think that Joseph went to unbelievable lengths to reconcile, consider what God has done. The impossible reconciliation in this chapter is nothing compared to what God has done for you who have trusted him. Wars are raging in the world. If you're honest with yourself, sin is raging in your heart. And yet God is steadily working toward reconciliation and reunion. I wonder if you were to be honest with yourself why you have such hard thoughts of God. God planned this account. God is the one who worked for redemption. God's the one who prepared each person in this account for this reconciliation because God is intent on displaying mercy. So one way this week to glorify God is to fight hard thoughts of him and to delight in his mercy in your soul. To leave this account, trusting, anchoring your life, not just in the sovereignty of God, but that his sovereignty is good. There's been so much human activity in this account. Brothers did wrong, Joseph was wrong. But what does Joseph understand as he looks back? Verse five, God sent me ahead to preserve life. Verse seven, God sent me to preserve a remnant, many survivors. A remnant's a significant theme in scripture. It's introduced here. It's a small family. They're outnumbered. And yet the remnant has the surest future on the planet. And ultimately Joseph concludes verse eight, it was not you who sent me here, but God. So God's sovereignty is not abstract. Joseph sees it as unthinkably good. He's come to believe that with every bone in his body. He did not just learn this doctrine from a book. He's now anchoring his life on this reality and he's come to know this through trial and suffering. He's come to know who God is, what his character is life through unbelievable injustice, unbelievably confusing circumstances, all of which caused him to just speak in an uncontrolled way of the goodness of God, the God who does good. Wickedness reigned. God was working for salvation. It's just remarkable the robustly, biblically true statements that flow from his mouth. I know that many of you know your, your doctrine and you would stand up and say, God is sovereign. But do you really believe in the deepest part of your soul that that's good news? It's always good. When you hear he's sovereign right now over your circumstances, uh, right now or the past year, the past five years, is your instinct to trust that's good or to wonder if he's being bad? When I was a kid, I was introduced to and I was raised on the music of Johnny Erickson Tata. She was 17 years old when she misjudged the depth of a, of a, a lake, a body of water that she dived into and she was paralyzed, and now for over 40 years, she's been a quadriplegic. Can you imagine her struggles? She's written books. She's, the Lord has used her around the globe. She recently wrote an article. It was titled, Worse Than Any Affliction, Why I Refuse to Grumble. And in the article, she reflects about her life at this point, how her muscles have so atrophied, gotten weak, that she could 
It was a struggle for her to breathe last year when she uh, was diagnosed with double pneumonia. The point of the article is that in all of her trials, she's speaking of her intention never to grumble. She writes, The Christian who wallows in complaining is tempted to believe that God might leave him. God isn't always helpful in times of trouble or that divine grace is lacking for every need. He's increasingly suspicious whether God's word is trustworthy. He feels that suffering is not worth what little eternal benefit it earns. I don't want any complaint to dare shrink my soul, dishonor my Lord, diminish my inheritance, or impact others negatively. Commend the article to you. It is what it looks like to anchor your life, believing in every moment God is always doing good. God can be trusted. And there's no way for me or any of you to know what God is doing in each of our lives right now. But I do know from Scripture, He's worthy of your trust and my trust, and He's so unworthy of your complaining. There is freedom in simply trusting Him. Trusting Him. When we complain, we are saying to God, we are wiser than you. We know better than what you've given us. When we complain, we doubt his character. We doubt his wisdom. We who are sinful accuse God of failing to do good. Do you realize that instead of complaining through all those injustices and trials, Joseph made full use of them and came to see God's goodness in them. Uh, Can you just see how Joseph's soul has expanded? He delights in God and his wisdom and his goodness preserving this family as a remnant so that there would be life. Many survivors. So fight complaining to build your capacity to enjoy and delight in God. I was convicted of that this week. Even this account, Joseph lavishes good on his family. That was beyond anything they deserved, given what they had done. It's going to be the same way when God does this for us. When he makes all things new, he's preparing land and a place for us. We can trust him. The cross stands as the irrefutable proof that God has and God is only doing good to you. Trust him. With what you don't understand, what you wish so badly you could change, anchor your life believing that the sovereignty of God in all things is not a cold and abstract reality, but it's being exercised perfectly from the God who is eternally wise, unchangeably good. In this account, we could put ourselves in the brothers' shoes. Benjamin's, Judah's, Jacob's, Joseph's, each of them played their part. But it is God. It's his sovereign purposes that win. And before this God, we have walked in the brothers' shoes. Jesus, our elder brother, has taken wrath that we might be reconciled, that we may no longer be slaves, but we might survive and live by faith until, just like Joseph's brothers, we see him face to face. We know his embrace and we live forever.